The presenting sponsor of Food Safety Matters is Cintas. Cintas has been outfitting workers for over 90 years. With a food processing apparel program from Cintas, you can be confident that your production line's garments are washed in a hygienically clean process, helping to ensure everyone is in the proper garment and ready to perform their task. Learn more at Cintas.com forward slash food safety. That's Cintas, C-I-N-T-A-S dot com forward slash food safety and get ready for the workday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and I'm joined by my co-host, Adrian Bloom, editorial director of the magazine, and Bob Ferguson, president of Strategic Consulting. And Bob will be sharing some highlights from his most recent food safety uh, insights column this episode. So we've got that to look forward to. See what I can do there. Oh, we know you're doing I better start writing right now. Yeah, you better get on that. Better come up with stuff. <laughs> and today he's going to wing it. No. Right. Uh, and for today's uh, interview, Adrian speaks with Dr. Susan Main, Director of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, CIFSAN, at FDA. Uh, as this is a position that she's held for the last eight years, there's a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, definitely. And we'll get to hear Dr. Main talk about CIFSAN's work in realizing legislation to implement FISMA and a lot of other achievements. And also, what's next for CIFSAN in light of the proposed reorg of FDA's human foods program? I know everybody's eager to hear more news about that, so stay tuned for that interview later in the yeah. episode. Yeah, I think that's... Definitely going to be one. I was thinking back, gosh, did we record it in time? You know, da 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 da. It was like, oh, yes, we did. Yay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and thank you, uh, Dr. Bain, for joining us. So, in the last few episodes, I've been speaking pretty generally uh, about the great lineup that we have planned for you at this year's Food Safety Summit, which is produced by Food Safety Magazine and is being held May 8th through the 11th in Rosemont, Illinois. Now, I thought that it would be helpful to give you a bit of an overview of how the event actually flows over the four days and the different types of sessions and learning opportunities that are available, starting with a choice of five certification courses uh, that run all day on Monday. Then Tuesday is dedicated to five three-hour workshops that allow for deep dives into foundational issues like root cause analysis, developing food safety leadership, advances in sanitation, traceability, and AI and data visualization. Uh, the day concludes with the welcome reception, which is one of our three networking events uh, at, the, at the conference. Wednesday kicks off with community groups for food service, manufacturing, and retail, one each, followed by the amazing keynote session that I told you about last episode. All of that leads into a full day of breakout sessions, um, and the day ends with the Food Safety Summit Gives Back Networking Reception, 
This year, we're working in partnership with and benefiting Stop Foodborne Illness. This is the part where I get to hold up the giant check, which was a lot of fun for me last year. I had never done that. But the other people that were holding the check last year were a lot taller than I am, which I'm not particularly short, I kind of average height, but I almost got lost behind that check. Anyway, it was fun. Thursday features one of the Food Safety Summit's signature events, the town hall that includes discussion and Q&A with FDA, USDA, CDC, and AFTO, followed by another full day of breakouts and culminates with a blockbuster closing session entitled Legal Insights to Sharpen Your Food Safety Focus and Stay Out of the Courtroom, exclamation point. <laughs> Moderated by our very own Adrian Bloom that includes an all-star legal panel. Bill Marler of Marler Clark, Sean Stevens of the Food Industry Council, Sharon Linden-Mail of DLA Piper, Miley Gratison of Hogan Levels, and Matthew Lash with the Department of Justice. So I'm sure that makes you want to do a deeper dive into what are all of those breakout sessions. <laughs> I would love to tell you about each and every one of them, but please go review the entire agenda at foodsafetysummit.com and then use the special podcast discount code FSM23PODCAST to add a 10% discount to your registration, which until March 31st adds an extra 10% on top of the already discounted early bird registration. And don't forget, we offer great offers for groups so you can bring your whole team. Quite a few people do, so it's um, got a lot of benefits for that. The code again is FSM23PODCAST. Register soon and save. You'll be glad you did. Okay, Adrian, it's time for some news. All right. Well, the first item we'd like to review is a report from the National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring System, or NARMS, that shows uh, some worrying trends in antimicrobial resistance, or AMR as we refer to it, of salmonella serotypes known to cause human illness. Now, the top salmonella serotypes found in each slaughter class were S. Kentucky in chicken, S. Reading in turkey, S. Montevideo in cattle, and S. Anatum in swine. So NARMS analyzed trends for data collected from 2014 to 2019 and found that salmonella isolates from chicken cecal and food product samples showed a significant increase in resistance to the antimicrobial drugs ciprofloxacin, ceftriaxone, and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So salmonella isolates from cattle and swine products also showed increased resistance to cephalosporin. Specifically, S. infantis from both cecal and product samples showed increased multidrug resistance. So with the increased AMR to these critically important antimicrobial drugs, I think this is clearly a trend we need to be paying attention to. Well, that's absolutely the case. I got a chance to read through some of it. This is the kind of study that you have to study. It's fairly complicated, but a couple of things is the salmonella in chicken, um, internal in the cecal, uh, more than doubled between 2016 and 2019. And just having a higher concentration means there's much more chance of it showing up in the product. And there's other things that happen as far as trading AMR uh, within the bacteria. So that's one of those things that you have to keep an eye on what's happening here as far as the rate of the change. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed bag on, on what they're resistant to, but it's still concerning when you look at some of the trends. 
The other one that jumped out, and I'll have more on this in just a second, is there was a really rapid growth in chicken, mainly due to Infanta. So it was really the one serotype that accounted for a lot of the growth in chicken. And let me come back to that in a second. The other thing is there was a really rapid increase in cipro resistance in chicken, and that's very significant as that was rarely seen prior to 2014. So that resistance to cipro is a fairly new phenomenon. So it's coming on pretty strong. And now it's 30% of the samples. 30% of the samples that they took in the study showed some level of cipro resistance. So that's growing fast. And again, that's a, that's a key antimicrobial that, uh, antibiotic that, uh, that is used pretty constantly. Now back to the infantis growth. Um, one of the ways that they've been able to check on this before is actually just test and see if uh, something is resistant to um, an antibiotic. And they, they do that the phenotype. They, they, they look at it in a lab and see if it's resistant. It's how they test it. But what they showed here is they, they used whole genome sequencing to look at the genes that actually cause antibiotic resistance. And what they found in the infantis is that 93% of the samples contain a plasmid. In other words, and plasmids are, are genes that are outside of the normal DNA, and they can also be transferred from cell to cell. And so that not only means that um, it's growing fairly quickly, and that's why you see that increase just from Insphanthus and chicken, but it also means it can spread quicker than what would be caused by random mutations and things like that. So th there's a number of things in here that are pretty, pretty alarming. So the serotype would spread quicker or the resistance would spread quicker? You know, that's a great question that I don't have the answer to. It depends if the plasmid can go from serotype to other serotypes, and I don't know. But it looks like the growth in antibiotic resistance in Infantis is just from this plasmid in Infantis, from what I could read between the lines. Yeah, and... I'm, I'm going to put my toe in the water here anyway. I'm feeling insecure <laughs> about it, but I'm going to go for it. Um, it seemed that there were other ways that resistance could be built up, not necessarily just by exposure to uh, to antibiotics, and I thought yes. that was interesting. And I'm not going to try and get into the what the science is there because I'll surely get that wrong. But the other part that I found very interesting was that they were looking at this. So this was farm to slaughter. Right. And that there was a different sort of idea about resistance that might be developed within production having to do with antimicrobial uh, interventions that might be being used within facilities. So I thought that, that was kind of interesting. Um, and so antibi antibiotic use on farms um, – and the and resistance uh, bacteria found in food, it's not necessarily one to one because there are other factors. Right. So that that kind of popped out at me. And then I wondered, and Bob asked you about, you know, were they using whole genome the whole time, 2014 to 2019, or are they seeing more deeply into this as a um, because they're using whole genome? Yeah, I, I don't know when they started using whole genome, but if you go back to, they say this is, you know, they use dates like 2016, 2014. Whole genome sequencing wasn't so, so widely used back then, so I, I would guess that they weren't, but I don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. The one, the only thing they mentioned in there about the analytical um, methods that they use were that they changed ways to grow uh, the bacteria, which is mm -hmm. which changed how sensitive the test was. So some of this increase may be detection that they didn't detect mm -hmm. before, but they don't think it's it's a, a big increase. But what what you said, you prefaced your comments, but you're spot on from a science standpoint. Is using whole genome sequencing means that they don't have to just 
grow the bacteria so that they can see what happens on a plate using old-fashioned um, MIC, what they call it, type testing. But they can follow the progression of the genes. And the same way you can trace back certain genes when we do whole genome sequencing to look at the source of an outbreak or something like that, you could do the exact same thing to see where these came from. So if the plasmids are moving, you'll be able to see that the plasmids are moving. Um, and if and if the genes are being, if, if, if the resistance is coming genetically, then you'll be able to trace that as well. I don't know exactly how they trace it, but I, that, that theoretically should be possible. So th th this is really interesting. Um, it's, it, it some of the some of the the data that they have, like I said, is a little bit of a mixed bag. Some of the increases are dramatic. Some of them are bumping along, but it's certainly like Adrian, you said it perfectly. Something to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the biggest takeaways here is you know the drugs that they're show that you know the AMR is problematic against because you know if you're looking at like things like Cipro, which is you know an antimicrobial drug that's used. To to treat a lot of, you know, serious and a wide range of infections. Uh, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, that is um, something that, you know, we know it by the brand name Bactrim, for example, that's used to treat a lot of common infections at many different types of things. So, I mean, you know, if we're seeing increasing AMR to these types of drugs, it's going to be a huge, huge, huge problem in the future. So, mm -hmm. um, really interesting uh, study and certainly a trend to follow. So, the next news item we want to discuss is a proposed expansion of the Seafood Import Monitoring Program, or SIMP as it's known, which is a risk-based program for certain species of seafood imported into the U.S. Now, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Fisheries, or NOAA Fisheries, wants to expand the SIMP from approximately 1,100 individual species to around 1,670 species in an effort to combat food fraud. So SIMP currently requires reporting and record keeping for nearly half of all U.S. seafood imports to fight illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing and misrepresented seafood from entering U.S. commerce. But NOAA Fisheries believes that the rule needs to be expanded to minimize the risk of mislabeling and food fraud, which is a growing problem in the seafood industry. Some of the species that are proposed to be added to SIMP include red snapper, tuna, cuttlefish, squid, eel, octopus, queen conch, and Caribbean spiny lobster. Now, all of these species are determined to be vulnerable to unregulated fishing and food fraud according to NOAA Fisheries Risk Assessment. The comment period for the proposed rule will close on March 28th, and NOAA Fisheries will consider all public comments before issuing a final rule on this. One of my favorite stats with seafood fraud is um, anytime they look at fraud and they do testing of different seafood uh, and they find that there's been a substitution. So it was supposed to be this species and it turns out to be that species. Virtually 100% of the times the substitution is for a more expensive fish. So anybody thinks that this is uh, just a mistake or an error, it's not. It's almost all intentional. Or otherwise, if it was just an error, occasionally they'd be selling something, some expensive fish cheaply, and it never happens that way. So anybody doubts that this is intentional, the proof is there, and it's all intentional. Economically motivated. <laughs> it's, it's all economically motivated. This is not somebody labeling a bin of tuna as something else. They're doing it, they're labeling a tin of something else as tuna, yeah. Well, a bin of tuna might be easy to do, but I just did some like, I was like, well, how much fish is that? And yeah. 
So, because I was surprised to see, well, they're just now adding tuna. That's interesting. Right. But um, so a couple stats that I found, and other people probably know this, but anyway, here I go. This was a stat from 2019 that 65 to 85% of all of our seafood is imported. Yep. So that is a lot mm-hmm. of fish. And then, so I thought, well, tuna really stuck out to me. Well, how much, how much are we really talking about? And again, this is a few years old, uh, 2020, 84,000 metric tons are imported. So that's 185 million pounds of tuna that they're now going to be thinking about inspecting. I mean, the other thing, I looked at Red Snapper, I mean, it was a drop in the bucket Mm. that didn't even. But this is a big, if they're going to now inspect, that's crazy. That's a big job. So it's interesting you say that because anytime there's a regulation like this, you think, oh, if there's that much fraud in the market, why not? Who, who would be against inspecting? And it has to it has to do something with either the the technical issues of being able to do the inspections. You know, what's it going to hold up? Are, are fish going to spoil on the dock where we're doing this mm-hmm. or what's the cost? So I decided to go into the docket and look at the comments. And I found a couple things that were interesting. No negative comments. Everybody was saying, you know, you should inspect everything, not just these species, but everything, even from the fish companies. But the other thing I found that was really interesting is the, the comment period opened in late December. In December, there were one or two comments. In January, there were one or two comments, including you know, some from uh, seafood companies. In February, there were 2,000 comments. And it was one of these form letters from somebody who said, you know, send this in and comment on it. There were 2,000 of the same form letter comments. So somebody's getting on top of this and is very interested in getting this passed through. I wasn't able to find out who. But of the comments that were not this form letter, people were saying, test it all. Even the seafood companies, the one or two that were in Mm. there were saying, there's no reason not to. Well, it's probably in their best interest to preserve their markets too, right? The, the issue to me is always going to be a trade-off is, uh, you know, how, mm. does, this, does this whole thing up at the dock, um, is there, you know, uh, import retention problems and what does that do for fresh seafood? What does it cost? Who pays for yeah. it? Those kind of things always come up. There's always a, a, a reason like that for this. But I, I didn't see any of those comments at all. But then you can't see anything because of whatever the campaign that's being run. Mm. That's interesting. So continuing with the seafood theme, uh, we also heard about a recent consumer reports analysis that looked at canned tuna from popular brands and found varying levels of mercury on a can-to-can basis. Now, according to CR's food safety experts, some cans of tuna had such high levels of mercury that it could impact the health of an unborn child if eaten by a person who's pregnant. Now, CR also found that canned tuna, especially light varieties, has relatively low average levels of mercury in general. CR tested 30 samples from different lots from five tuna brands packed in water. The water was drained before the testing. The tests included both albacore and skipjack varieties of tuna. Now, interestingly, albacore was found to contain over three times more mercury than skipjack or light tuna on average. None of the albacore tested had mercury levels low enough for an adult to have three servings a week safely. Most of the albacore tunas had levels that would allow just one serving per week. Now, of the total samples, one in five cans of tuna had a spike in mercury content exceeding FDA's recommendations for tuna consumption. 
Consumer Reports also analyzed FDA data from 2014 and found the same percentage of tuna cans to have heightened levels of mercury. So that's sort of interesting. If there's room to criticize this report from Consumer Reports, it's a small sample. And mm -hmm. so it it's may or may not be representative. But I read through the article and they interviewed some people who were industry as a, uh, representatives. And the, and the industry said they know that this is the case, that mercury levels uh, vary. The bigger the fish, the more mercury because it accumulates, uh, bioaccumulates mm -hmm. within bigger fish. Um, the one thing that jumped out to me about this article, though, is if the industry knows about this and they know that there's some variability and the FDA knows about it because they've commissioned a study, which is also referenced in the article, we expect data back next year sometime. The best thing about this study is they did a survey of a popular survey of just people and how much they may be aware of how much mercury there is in tuna. And almost nobody knew that there was any mercury in tuna. So what Consumer Reports is doing is letting people know that if you're a more vulnerable person and this is something that's more of concern to you, you should at least know this so you can make the right choice. And that seems to be what they've really done here. It'll be interesting to see when the FDA comes out with the data from an analytical standpoint, but at least they're raising awareness that mm -hmm. if, if you're concerned about this and you're, you're, you're pregnant or an yeah. otherwise vulnerable, you know. Yeah particularly the, the vulnerable uh, populations. I, yeah. I mean, I can remember years, years and years ago now trying to let a friend of mine who was pregnant know, well, you know, you might want to stay away from, from uh, you know, foods that could potentially, you know, are iron, you know, known for listeria. And they, like I said, years ago, but they were like, what? Wisteria? <laughs> <laughs> there was just no awareness at all. So um, very, very good to, to build that up. And then hopefully people can make very informed decisions uh, about, about what they're doing and what they're eating. Mm -hmm. So, and before we go, we'd like to leave you with a few tidbits of information to chew over. Now, first, we reported on a recent study of Denmark's DTU National Food Institute that found PFAS contamination in eggs, likely from organic fish meal used as layer hen feed. However, PFAS in eggs laid by free-range barn and battery hens was found to be much lower. The researchers said the problem can be simply solved by replacing PFAS-contaminated feed with non-contaminated feed, which was found to cut the levels of PFAS in half in eggs in four to seven days. In January, the EU introduced maximum levels for four types of PFAS in certain foods, including eggs and fish, and it is expected that the EU will also introduce maximum levels in feeds for hens at some point. Don't feed the chickens plastic. Sounds like a good idea. It, it too. does sound like an easy solution, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> So we'd also like to tell you about a resource that's available to commercial produce buyers from the Northeast Center to Advance Food Safety. It's an online produce safety handbook for buyers that clarifies the complex web of food safety regulations and standards across 12 Northeastern states. Now, this handbook website helps produce buyers navigate each state's produce safety audit and inspection information, and it offers things like an interactive regional map, farm production statistics by state, and regional content in a side-by-side -side display, among other features. So if your business involves produce in the U.S. Northeast, make sure you check out that free resource. It's very helpful. Well, they had me at Interactive Regional Map. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. If I had time, I would have gone straight for that <laughs> map. 
Stacy, I did the same thing. I went to the website and started playing around with it and counting the number of farms in New York and all sorts of stuff. It, it, it's, a, it's a very good resource. Anybody who cares or needs to know about this stuff, if you're doing demographics, sometimes like I do with, with the amount of testing it's done, um, I save this because it's, it's a, a tremendous yeah. resource. Sounds really, really useful. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both. Um, as always, there are links to all the stories um, that we've covered here today in our show notes. Uh, you know, I also like to remind you to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Just search for Food Safety Magazine. And of course, if you want to see more of what we offer here at Food Safety Magazine, we encourage you to go to our website, which is food-safety.com. All about the dash. Yeah. I've got the T-shirt in production. <laughs> so I don't know about y'all, but I'm ready for some food safety insights from our friend Bob Ferguson. Um, as many of you know, Bob regularly surveys our audience to gain insights on important industry trends. And these survey results, these most recent survey results, were published in the Feb-March issue of Food Safety Magazine. Uh, in his article titled, How the Food Traceability Rule Will Impact Food Processors, uh-oh, dash, part one. Part one, that's right. I, the dash was for you, Bob. Oh, I like, it's all about the dash. I'm sorry. <laughs> M dash this time, M dash. I got to work on my timing on this. I'm falling down on this. Well, yeah, we wanted to find out about the food traceability rule. And, and everybody, you may have heard something about this, but last a, November. A what yeah, rule? A, the food traceability rule? rule. Yeah. 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 Huh. <laughs> Yeah, kind of pulling a blank. Yeah, there may have been some <laughs> webinars and articles. Yeah, we only did that there webinar with the something. traceability rule team. Yeah, we might have talked to a guy named Frank about this. That's right. Yeah, That's I don't right. know. I, I guess when I say it has a wide-reaching impact, I'm not fibbing on that part. But uh, we wanted to find out how that was going to impact, so, uh, impact the industry. So we did what it is that we do, and we um, did a survey and interviews involving 100 companies all throughout North America and around the world. So we got enough information that this is gonna be a two-part article, but part one is the one that's published right now. You can go take a look at it. Uh, but as we joked a bit in the intro, intro we did wanna find out about how much people knew about it, what they were doing to get ready, and uh, how, how, whether or not they thought that they were uh, subject to the rule. So as far as the degree of awareness, 88% of the people in North America said they were aware of the rule, and it was roughly 50-50 outside of the United States, which would make sense um, because it's an FDA rule, but the word is getting out. People know that they have something to do. Um, so they just have to get prepared for it. Um, uh, but what is it that they have to do? That is where we found that there's a fair amount of uncertainty on this point. For example, roughly 25% said they're not even sure if the rule applies to them. Um, and about 60% believe the rule will apply to them in some form, regardless of whether or not they have a food that's on the FTL, the food traceability list or not. So there's a lot of questions. There's also issues about exemptions that people are not very um, sh uh, sure about either. So that's really where a lot of the comments came back in is, yeah, I know about this. Um, I, I can see the list of foods. Does it apply to me and why? What happens? That's the biggest issue. When we asked them about their top concerns, it's this issue of application. Does it apply to me? Enforcement. If it does apply to me, what do I have to do? Exactly what I have to do? And what am I going to be committed to as far as compliance? We're by far the number one and number two um, concerns. Uh, they don't know if, uh, if high-risk foods remain high-risk in the situation they're in. Does my processing take them out of a high-risk category? Um, what exactly do I have to do to show that? So these are the kind of questions that are, um, are coming up. And some of these questions seem to be clear, 
But with many regulations like this ones, there are a lot of circumstances and answers that, uh, that they just need. So that's one of the things that we explore a little bit in this version of part one and a little bit more that we'll talk about later in, um, in part two. Um, the other question is the FDA has a three-year compliance on this. So we also asked, uh, do you think that the three-year compliance timeline is reasonable? And 87% of the people think that the time frame is reasonable. Now, we talked a little bit before we started recording on if, you, if you're not sure exactly what it is that you need to do, maybe it's... <laughs> Three years it, sounds like plenty right, of time. <laughs> maybe it's not a lot of time if you, if you find out what you really have to do. But uh, what people are really looking for, the comments were, is they, they think that they should have some more guidance on this, wherever it comes from, but they particularly need guidance on, from the FDA. Do I have to comply? Why do I have to comply? Exactly what do I have to do? If I'm a processor that does this, does this count if I'm a processor that just does this other process? Does that count? There were some questions about people that were nonprofit um, food banks, and they want to know if, if they have to comply. And the rule is kind of gray on whether or not they have to or not. So these are the questions that people want to know. What exactly do I have to do? And we're going to explore some of those circumstances and particularly take a look at the ability to apply for an exemption or to, to pose these questions to the FDA and get a direct answer. Uh, in part two. But that's right now. The people know about it. They know they have to do something, but they really need some help in, um, in more details. So, Bob, I have a question. Now, I know that some processors are concerned about the rule applying to them, even if they don't produce foods on the food traceability list. Why is that? So the main reason, if they're sure that they're not on the food traceability list, the main reason is what's going to happen from a commercial standpoint. If they sell to a big buyer, and the buyer is not certain. Let's say it's not a black and white decision on whether or not they have to comply. The buyer is probably going to say, yes, then you have to comply because ultimately someone's going to ask me. So if let's say there are four types of tomatoes that sell and three of them are on the list and one isn't, well, I'm going to request that you follow the food traceability list, or I'm going to not request, I'm going to put it on part of your contract that you have to, you have to comply with the traceability for all of those regardless of whether they are or not. And again, any place where they can't get a real straight answer, um, the buyers are not going to take a chance and say, well, let's just see what happens. They're going to require their their suppliers to um, have that traceability. So I think that's what they're seeing there. The other part of the question is whether or not the, the way it's described on the list is the same as my product. So uh, again, if there's a great question there, someone's going to say, well, if we're not sure, then you have to comply. Well, it really just sounds like they need a lot of help. I mean, uh, and it, it got me to thinking, well, we've certainly are trying, you know, it made me think, well, what more can we do? You know, uh, we certainly feel that we have a role to play here and we are real proud of the fact that we've done well. So here I go. <laughs> <laughs> we, we did our, our, uh, webinar with, uh, with FDA back in November, really right after the rule, um, uh, was, was finalized. Um, and then there's a podcast also. Uh, that just came out on January 31st that we did with uh, uh, Samuel Seafood and, uh, and FDA, where I think they kind of dived in, dove into some of these questions about, you know, what, what, you know, guidance, please. Um, so I don't know. There's, you know, and FDA did their own webinar, but more is needed, clearly. And, and I'll do this for you. I know that the webinar was pretty well attended, which I think is indicative not only of, of how, the webinar that, that we held, but also the fact that people are really interested. And, and, and it would seem to me, just my opinion, that there's two things going on here. One is, 
I need to find out about the rules so I know the right questions to ask. And then I can pose those questions directly to the agency and say, okay, here's my specific Mm -hmm. request. Here's what I do. What do I have to do now? And so most of the interviews I did, that's what people were saying is, it doesn't look like I have to comply or it does look like I have to comply, but I'm not sure what happens here. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the processors said, I sometimes have to change product in the middle of a shift and the middle of a, a lot. And I can use two different forms of the same vegetable. One seems to comply and one seems to not comply. What do I do? That's a question that they're going to have to pose directly to the agency and get some sort of uh, answer from that. But they need to know the questions first. So, yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of people looking for, you know, first off information and then concrete answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks as always, Bob. Um, And I want to remind uh, all of our listeners that you can read the whole article uh, on our website and uh, and it won't be long before the uh, part two will be available in our April-May issue. Now it's time for Adrian's interview with Dr. Susan Main, Director of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, CIFSAN, at FDA, where she leads the center in developing and implementing policies, programs, and initiatives to ensure the U.S. food supply is safe and healthy for consumers, and that food, dietary supplements, and cosmetics sold in the U.S. are safe and properly labeled. Since taking the helm in 2015, Dr. Maine has overseen and implemented several landmark public health policies and initiatives, including issuing eight foundational rules and more than 50 guidances to implement FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act. SIFSAN continues to support innovation in the food supply while assuring products are safe and properly labeled. In 2022, SIFSAN completed the first pre-market consultation of a human food made from cultured animal cells. An internationally recognized public health leader and scientist, Dr. Main received a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of Colorado. She earned a PhD in nutritional sciences with minors in biochemistry and toxicology from Cornell University. And prior to joining the FDA, she spent nearly three decades at Yale University, where she held an endowed chair as the CEA Winslow Professor of Epidemiology. Her distinguished career there included two leadership positions, Chair of the Department of Chronic Disease Epidemiology and Associate Director of the Yale Cancer Center. And after a quick break, we'll get to hear that great interview with Dr. Maine. Cintas has been outfitting workers for over 90 years. And with a food processing apparel program from Cintas, you can be confident that your production line's garments are washed in a hygienically clean process and delivered back to your facility every single week. The Cintas network includes hundreds of locations across North America, helping to ensure everyone is in the proper garment and ready to perform their task. No more garment hoarding, no more missing smocks. Learn more at Cintas.com forward slash food safety. That's Cintas, C-I-N-T-A-S dot com forward slash food safety and get ready for the workday. Well, I am here today with Dr. Susan Main, the director of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition or CIFSAN as it's commonly known at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration or FDA. Now, Dr. Main, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you. It's my pleasure to be here with you today, Adrian. I've listened to so many of your podcasts, and it's a real privilege for me to be here with you today. 
Oh, thank you. Well, it's it's so nice to hear that you're a podcast listener as well. That's a, that's a feather in our cap. So um, I'd like to get started by uh, talking a little bit about um, your your work with CISAN. Now, since you've taken the role of director in 2015, you've overseen a number of important public health policies. Um, can you share with us some of the highlights? I'd be happy to. Yes, it's been eight years since I joined, and I can tell you I'm really proud of all the work that our staff across CIFSAN are doing every day, and it's hard to pick a few highlights, but let me do my best to, to give you the highlight list. The first one that I obviously have to start with is the implementation of the FDA Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA. Uh, this has been a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous effort across CIFSAN and really the entire foods program at FDA. Uh, we have drafted and finalized eight rules, more than 50 guidances, and developed compliance and implementation programs for each. Uh, these rules really continue to transform the way we keep food safe. And now that we have the foundational rules in place, including the latest food traceability rule, we know we can take more targeted steps to really focus and enhance our prevention work through initiatives such as the prevention strategies that we announced recently, which I know was a topic of one of your previous podcasts. Mm -hmm. I also want to highlight the important work that we are doing uh, through our Closer to Zero initiative to help reduce harmful exposure to chemicals in foods, especially those consumed by infants and young children. Uh, these are our most vulnerable consumers, so this is really important work. We've already made important progress, for example, in reducing exposure to arsenic in infant rice cereal, and we continue to do so, including through our recently released action levels for lead in baby foods. And I know this is a food safety podcast, but I feel like I would be remiss not to talk about nutrition because of the critical intersection between nutrition and food safety, along with the sheer magnitude of the public health impact of our work in nutrition. Close to Zero, for example, clearly highlights the intersection of food safety and nutrition. So as I look back on the last eight years, there are some big highlights for me, including some major steps we have taken, for example, to reduce trans fats, added sugars, and sodium in the diet. We have eliminated the use of artificial sources of trans fats from the food supply. We have included added sugars to the nutrition facts label, and we've set voluntary targets for sodium reduction in food. These actions are so crucial in helping consumers have access to healthier foods and to help make healthier choices. And all of this supports the president's recently announced national strategy on hunger, nutrition, and health. These steps can help reduce diet-related chronic diseases and improve health equity. Well, those are certainly a lot of achievements, and uh, thank you for sharing all of those with us. Now, you mentioned closer to zero as you know one example of an intersection between nutrition and food safety, um, and you know definitely so. Now, can you talk more about what FDA is doing regarding chemical food safety? Sure. So, broadly speaking, we know that people are concerned about chemicals in foods. And at the FDA, we are evaluating the safety of chemicals directly added to food or that come into contact with food to ensure they are safe when used as intended. 
But we also look at chemicals that are present because of environmental contamination, such as lead, cadmium, arsenic, and mercury, or chemicals that are there as a result of manufacturing processes, which could include chemicals like acrylamide. So focusing in on our Closer to Zero initiative, for which I know you also have a great podcast in 2022, I will briefly note that because certain contaminants like lead and arsenic are present in the environment where foods are grown and processed, a certain level is unavoidable. And so our goal is to reduce people's exposure to chemicals from foods to the greatest extent possible. And our top priority is on foods consumed by babies and young children, as outlined in Closer to Zero. And I know now that these contaminants were in the foods that I fed my own children many years ago. And I won't tell you how many years ago. (laughs) But the good news is that significant progress has already been made in terms of the levels of these metals like lead in foods today. But we want to do more, enabled by science and data, so future generations can benefit even further. And returning to the issue of chemicals in foods more broadly, the FDA is enhancing its approach to food chemical safety by using new and evolving science and data to strengthen and prioritize our work on activities that ultimately will have the greatest public health impact. Great. Well, that's definitely uh, some good news there about um, all the efforts that are being done to eliminate uh toxic metals in foods. Now, I want to switch uh, subjects a little bit. Now, this year is also the 10th anniversary of Genome Tracker. Can you update us on that program and tell us about where it is now? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, The Genome Tracker Network is probably the most groundbreaking and impactful project we have taken on to enhance food safety through the use of whole genome sequencing. And Adrian, I worked in the field of genomic epidemiology before I came to the FDA. And I can tell you, this is genomic epidemiology at its very best. Today, there are more than 1 million foodborne pathogen sequences that have been uploaded to a publicly available database, and the number continues to grow every day. The use of whole genome sequencing and the rapid public sharing of this information allows us to detect and investigate outbreaks sooner, leading to reduced foodborne illnesses and deaths. In fact, and it's just one example, uh, we are currently working on a listeria outbreak, and that is an excellent example of the power of this technology. Through the use of whole genome sequencing and through our work with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, we were able to identify a multi-state outbreak with only three cases of listeriosis and find the implicated food vehicle as verified through whole genome sequencing. As the public database grows, so does its impact on public health. And we estimate that for every 1,000 isolate sequences that are added to the database for a given pathogen, there is a reduction of approximately six illnesses per year associated with that pathogen. So we are very proud of FDA's leadership in bringing whole genome sequencing into the arena of food safety, a major achievement that is impacting the safety of the global food supply. Well, that's super interesting. And, um, you know, that's impressive uh, what you're talking about with the recent listeria outbreak and having been able to identify it using only three um, cases. Uh, Very interesting stuff there. Now, speaking of um, outbreaks, now, 
FDA has been doing some self-examining recently, including conducting an internal review of the infant formula chronobacter outbreak and resulting supply crisis that uh, happened throughout 2022. Um, can you talk a bit about some of the lessons that the agency has learned from that incident and you know, what is happening to move forward from it? Sure. Um, first, I want to clearly convey that FDA is always committed to continuous improvement. And I have to say here that it's not at all uncommon within the FDA to perform what we refer to as after-action reviews, where we look at a response through the lens of what could we do better in the future. So in fall of 2022, the FDA released an evaluation of its response to potentially contaminated infant formula, and we continue to work across the agency to implement improvements. And I can tell you this particular response involving chronobacter contamination of powdered infant formula was especially challenging and unique in so many ways. First, chronobacter Sakazaki is much less known and studied compared to other foodborne pathogens like E. coli or salmonella or listeria. And it's not nationally notifiable to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So in stark contrast, to the listeria outbreak involving three cases that I mentioned earlier, putting together a possible case cluster was much more challenging. This circumstance was also highly unusual involving powdered infant formula, which is a sole source of nutrition for so many infants. Given this, possible food shortages raised another set of risks. Not only were we focused on the safety of the infant formula, but also considering any supply chain implications that our actions would have. So we really had to work in new ways in this response to not only focus on food safety, but also resiliency of infant formula supply chains. Over the last year and following the voluntary recall and plant closure by Abbott Nutrition, our infant formula team acted quickly to expand consumer access to infant formula. By utilizing regulatory flexibility, we allowed the import of certain infant formula products from abroad that could demonstrate to us that they were both nutritious and safe. More recently, we have created a pathway to help these products transition to full compliance with our regulations and be able to stay in the US market while they are doing so. So this is already strengthening the availability and the diversity of the infant formula that consumers are seeing on store shelves. And as I'm hoping you know, we have also released an outline of a prevention strategy for powdered infant formula that encompasses a lot of work underway to enhance its safety. A piece of that strategy that I'm really encouraged to have moving forward is work that is underway with the National Advisory Committee on Microbiological Criteria for Foods, or NACMF, to help us close some knowledge gaps around chronobacter contamination so that any public health interventions we put into place are grounded in the best science. So I started out by speaking about the fact that this was really unique. There were some big data gaps here, not a lot known about this organism, but as you can see, we've already taken important steps forward to address those data gaps, data gaps to help us moving forward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know also as part of that prevention strategy, um, it's 
it's been proposed that Cronobacter's Sakazaki be elevated to a nationally notifiable disease. Maybe you could talk a little bit about um, what kind of power that would give, uh, you know, government agencies to be able to to track and tackle um, outbreaks uh, associated with that pathogen if it were elevated to that status. Certainly. So there is a process by which that would be considered. It's handled by the Council for State and Territorial Epidemiologists, um, who make determinations about what types of infections are nationally notifiable to the CDC. So currently, with regard to Cronobacter, there are, uh, I think, probably two states in the country that where it's actually reported. But for most of the states, it's not even considered reported at the state level let alone notified to the CDC at the federal level. So in our normal outbreak setting, if someone is diagnosed with listeriosis, for example, there's a process in place to notify the CDC um, across all different states to move forward to whole genome sequence those cases so you can put those clusters together and say, okay, we have three people in three different states who all have a pathogen that shares the same molecular fingerprint. So we have a case cluster that's defined by molecular. That has not been the situation we've had with Cronobacter. So these cases were not being necessarily reported at the state level, not notified to the CDC, and whole genome sequencing was not done. So as I alluded to earlier, that makes it harder for the, for us when we're trying to think about mounting a response, because the first part of any outbreak response is to put together a case cluster. So I know there will be conversations held about whether Cronobacter should be reported at the state level across the country, and whether it should be notified to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's a relatively rare infection. Uh, CDC reports very few cases on an annual basis. But if it does move forward to that notifiable status, we will have better uh, data at the national level on what's happening out there, what the trends are. We would be better able to identify if we're seeing any signals moving forward. As I indicated, we just have some significant data gaps around Cronobacter. So more to come in terms of the process for making this a, a potentially nationally notifiable disease to the Centers, control, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Great. Thank you for that information. And we'll definitely keep an eye out for, for more news on that. Um, now, the next thing I want to ask you about is that the FDA commissioner, uh, Dr. Califf, recently released a new vision for the FDA's human foods program. Do you support this new vision? And also, how do you see this new vision strengthening FDA's role in food safety and nutrition? Thank you. And I do fully support the new vision. And um, again, I've been in my role for eight years. And so from that perspective, I do see it as a necessary step in elevating and unifying the foods program and SIFSAN's work within the agency. In fact, as we evaluated the needs across the foods program, I held listening sessions with my own employees to hear about their experiences. I shared this information along with my own observations, having served as director of the center for eight years, and I shared all of that information with the commissioner to help inform his vision. 
And we have been heard. It is clear from Dr. Califf's proposed redesign that he intends to strengthen the human foods program in ways that will break down silos, make us a more unified program, streamline decision-making, and elevate our work within the agency. Great. Thank you for that perspective. Now, what changes or trends do you see on the horizon for the food industry and for food safety? And, you know, what do you think will be the role of the new human foods program in that? So I I foresee uh, rapid innovation that we've been seeing in food today, and that's only going to continue. We are seeing things like new gene-edited crops, cultured animal cell food products, novel approaches to produce food ingredients. And FDA is here to support innovation because it results in more choices for consumers in the marketplace. And some of the technology that's being used today will be critically important as industry works to mitigate the adverse impact of climate change on food production. The FDA has extensive experience in food safety assessment across a wide range of food production technologies. The agency is evaluating new substances all the time as industry practices evolve to meet consumer demands and preferences. Our role is to assure that innovative foods are safe and appropriately labeled. But I think it's important to emphasize that regardless of the changes happening in industry, consumer demands, or even the human foods program at FDA, we always remain focused on our public health mission and we always use science as our foundation. We have a lot of work underway and that's not going to change or slow down. And so the commissioner's vision for the future takes into consideration what's going to be happening down the road and all the innovation that we will be seeing and our need to be prepared to respond to that. So as as I reflect back on the last eight years, major milestones have been achieved in both food safety and nutrition, but there is always so much more to do, and we are prepared for and committing to do what we can to tackle the challenges of the future, and the new vision is certainly foundational to that work as well. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Main, so much for sharing your expertise and your insights. And uh, we will certainly be looking ahead with you to um, the new vision and to innovation in uh, food safety as always. So thank you again for your time. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. Likewise, Adrian. Thank you for hosting me here today. Thanks again to Dr. Susan Main for joining us on the podcast today. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. A very special thanks to our sponsor, Cintas. Cintas has been outfitting workers for over 90 years. To learn more about their food processing apparel program, visit Cintas.com slash food safety. That's Cintas, C-I-N-T-A-S dot com slash food safety. And get ready for the workday. Don't hesitate. Come on, send us your questions or suggestions to podcast at food-safety.com or post a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. We're always glad to get your feedback. And to make sure that new bonus episodes magically appear in your podcast player, all you have to do is click that follow or subscribe button in your player and presto. And while you're there, throw some stars our way by rating the podcast, especially if you enjoyed it. It only takes a minute and it's good for everyone. All right, that's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on March 14th. In the meantime, take good care of yourselves and those around you, and we'll talk to you then.